Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Smartwater. Not satisfied being like other brands, Smartwater looked up at the clouds and said, I wonder if we can one-up Mother Nature for a purer, crisper water. And guess what? They did. Smartwater, vapor distilled for purity, electrolytes for taste. Hello, and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I and I Think You're Interesting. And when we launched this show, I made a list of 20 names, people that I thought, not just that I wanted to have on, but I thought we could get, you know, it wasn't like I didn't jump right to let's have Steven Spielberg on. Now, Steven, if you're listening, we would gladly welcome you in the studio here in Koreatown. However, one of the names on that list was one of my favorite screenwriters. She's written some great movies that I've loved, including movies like Young Adult, movies like Ricky and the Flash, movies like this year's Tully, and then the two movies I'd say she's probably most known for, Juno, for which she won an Academy Award, and Jennifer's Body, the fun horror movie that's sort of being rediscovered this year. Her name, of course, Diablo Cody. She is, I think, one of the sort of sharpest funniest writers out there. I think perhaps that's because um, she and I share a lot of cultural references, which we're going to get into in the following discussion, but I have really enjoyed following her work over the years. In addition to Tully, which is a movie you should all see, she is working on a stage musical version of the Alanis Morissette album Jagged Little Pill, which ran over the summer in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and is making its way toward Broadway. Diablo is uh, just tremendous amount of fun and I had a great time talking to her and I think you're going to enjoy it too so please stick around my guest today wrote the script for the wonderful film Tully earlier this year Diablo Cody thank you for joining us thank you for having me so I kind of want to just talk to you about the movie and not not a lot of people may have seen it so it's a movie about um, motherhood let's say yeah Uh, it's sort of broadly speaking Um, just kind of for the people who haven't heard of it what's what's Tully what's the story of Tully Tully is a story about a woman named Marlo who is uh, pregnant with her third child and is kind of struggling with just the the weight of everyday life Mm -hmm. um, having a little bit of a midlife crisis. And she has the baby in kind of spirals. Mm. Um, It's, you know, she's just exhausted and overwhelmed. And her brother, who is wealthy, offers to buy her a night nurse who, you know, this is a real thing. These are people, a person that comes to your house overnight and helps you care for the baby so that you can sleep. Mm. And she takes him up on the offer, even though initially she thinks it's kind of a bizarre, bougie concept. And then this night nurse, Tully, shows up and winds up being sort of a transformative person in her life. Yeah. I think, you know, you mentioning that made me think the movie's really smart about class in weird ways. Like, it, like her brother and Marlo are from different classes in a way, yeah. even though they're not that far apart on the economic ladder. Right. I yeah. I mean, they both grew up um, lower middle class or, or struggling, it's implied. And uh, But now, you know, he has become this kind of monstrous yuppie <laughs> and she is sort of keeping it real. So I, I guess I knew that I was going to have to acknowledge the class issue. Mm-hmm. If you're writing a film about a night nurse, which is a luxury, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. That is kind of like, that is kind of interesting, like how parenting... 
um, you know, money changes everything, but like money Absolutely. changes parenting too. And like, I don't have kids, so, yeah. uh, but I assume, you know, it, it does in such dramatic ways that it's actually kind of funny for me, you know, living in LA mm-hmm. and being surrounded by other parents because I am a mom. It's, uh, it's sometimes shocking to me how unaware people are of their privilege. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh, we, you know, Steve and I only got to go to Turks and Caicos for five days because we have kids. And it's like, you know, that's, you're doing all right. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, give me a sense of like where, I, I know this is the worst question in the world, but it's such a, a sort of a unique spin on this idea. So where did, like, where did the idea come from? Where did you hear about night nurses that sort of made you think well, this is a movie? I'm very much steeped in sort of parent culture, mm-hmm. you know, and have been for the last eight years of my life. And I know a lot of people in LA who have used night nurses. In fact, it was a concept that I wasn't aware of until I moved here. I'm mm-hmm. originally from Illinois and, okay. and Minneapolis. And I moved here and I was at a party one night and there was a, a woman there who looked incredible mm-hmm. and she told me that she had like a two-month-old baby. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, how are you here? How do you look so good? And she was like, night nurse. Mm-hmm. And I said, what's that? Mm-hmm. She explained the concept to me, and I was floored. Because, you know, in the community that I grew up in, you know, people just have babies and wake up with them and are sleep-deprived, and that's part and parcel of the experience. Um, and I didn't realize that you could uh, you could opt out of that if you had enough money. Yeah. <laughs> So I knew a lot of people that had done this. And I have to admit, like, I had – I was really dismissive of it. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I'm not going to lie. Mm-hmm. I, I thought it was ridic- – I thought it sounded ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So I had my son, and then I had another son. And then I got pregnant, and I was working a lot. And I thought, you know what? For my third child, I'm going to try this night nurse thing. Right. I'm just – I'm curious. And I know it kind of goes against all my principles as a parent, but I'm going to do it. And it was the most amazing, life-changing – I cannot even express how unbelievable it was to have another pair of hands on deck like that. Mm-hmm. And to know that if I hit a wall at 4 in the morning, I could go and sleep for a couple of hours. <laughs> so that – I thought to myself, like, somebody's got to write about this. But I'm, I don't want to just write a straightforward story about a woman who gets a night nurse because that's boring as fuck. Right. You know, I want to do something with a with a twist. Right, um, and and we'll come back to that uh, maybe in a, a spoilery discussion. But uh, I, I'm going to put a pin in Minneapolis because the second half of this is just going to be a Valley Fair question, uh, <laughs> like my talk, favorite place yeah, in the world. We're just yeah. going to talk about Shakopee. Um, <laughs> no, uh, uh, I'm from South Dakota, so whenever I hear somebody say like Upper Midwest, where um, are you from, Grand Forks? Uh, uh, no, uh, near. Or wait, the is Mich- that North Dakota? Yeah, that's North Dakota. I'm sorry, near the Minneapolis. Mitchell near the Mitchell area, the world's only corn palace. Oh, I've actually been to the corn palace. Yeah, it's yeah, uh, it's uh, this is a thing. It's a gym. Uh, people like go inside and are expecting something wonderful and no. There's a basketball gym in there. Yeah, but, you know. Uh, it's great. Yeah. Um, no, I, one of the things that uh, I love about your films, the things you've written, including like uh, Juno, of course, and Young Adult and some of these other movies I love is that they straightforwardly sort of express stories about women, sometimes filtered through certain genre perspectives, if you will, but always first and foremost about the experience of being a woman in America. And I guess I'm just wondering, how do you keep getting movies made? Because like, that's hard to do. It is. It's challenging. I got very fortunate, you know, early in my career because Juno wound up being my ticket to make lots of much more intimate, smaller, weirder things. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm really lucky because if that, if that movie hadn't been, you know, such a huge financial success, I can't Mm -hmm. imagine I would have then been permitted to go make Jennifer's Body and Young Adult. And, mm. you know, Tully, you know, I also, and I'm assuming this is because of, you know, the dearth of interesting roles for women. 
I've never had difficulty attracting talent to my scripts. Hmm. So, you know, I've been able to, you know, if you attach Meryl Streep to a script or you attach Charlize Theron to a script, you get it made. Yeah. So I'm very, very lucky in terms of casting. Very. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things about your scripts is they, they obviously have your voice. Like you have a voice as a writer, but it's changed and evolved over time. I, I don't, I don't want to say matured because I don't think that's the right word yeah, for it. Yeah, but I like, don't. I might, maybe. I guess I have. I have gotten older in the linear sense. So it's but like I mean, you're also you like you're sorry. You're also like writing about older characters. Yeah, that's you know, true. Which helps in mm-hmm. that regard. So yeah. tell me about kind of um, the process of you know finding your voice across your career. Um, I I never really like sat down and consciously said that I wanted to. With the exception of Juno, which was a really specific kind of exercise where I had seen Napoleon Dynamite, mm-hmm. and I thought to myself, like, I really loved how, like, specific, distinctive, and not necessarily realistic the mm-hmm. the conversations were in that film. Mm-hmm. And yet it was—I love Napoleon Dynamite. Mm-hmm. I know it's a divisive film. <laughs> no judgment here. It's one of my favorite. I just rewatched it again the other night. Um, but I thought to myself, like, oh, like— before that, I didn't really think I was capable of writing a screenplay. Mm-hmm. It was something I thought about, but I'd never really sat down and attempted to do it. And after seeing that movie, I went, okay, like, I think I could do something like this. Right. So in in Juno, you know, it's not really, um, the dialogue's like stylized, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then after that, after, you know, doing that once, it wasn't like I was going to spend the rest of my career writing that kind of stuff. So I just kind of... Young adult specifically, I think, was the point where I started to kind of explore something a little different and maybe a little more authentic to how I actually communicate with people mm-hmm. in my life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, uh, at least in terms of Mavis, you know, obviously not every character is like an avatar for mm-hmm. the author, but it was, um, yeah, it just kind of, it's definitely not something where I sit down with every project and say to myself, okay, this is this is the voice that I'm going to adopt for this story. Well, let me let me kind of approach that from a different angle. And first of all, if my listeners haven't seen Young Adult, it's still one of my favorite movies of the decade. Thank uh, you. And uh, you need to go rent it or stream it or whatever you can do to watch movies now. I don't know. I own DVDs still. <laughs> yeah. It's such an antiquated concept. Yeah. Um, well, one of the things about Juno, you said it had stylized dialogue and the trailer for it had like the most stylized scene. It was the bulk of the trailer, as I recall. Oh, man, I haven't seen that trailer in a um, decade, but yeah. Did you – so when you were like looking at working on follow-up projects, did you specifically say, I don't want to get pigeonholed, pigeonholed as the person who writes very stylized stuff? I mean, it, that, that ship had sailed. Like I, to this day, even though I've written like five other features that mm-hmm. are not written in that style, I'm still pigeonholed in yeah. that way. Mm. You know, I still – like I literally will see references to like snappy writer Diablo Cody or like, mm-hmm. you know, quirky or glib or that kind of thing, which I don't really think is the mode that I'm in these days. But, mm-hmm. you know, first impressions I are actually, lasting. <laughs> I, I do think that, you know, uh, when – men write stuff that has lots of pop culture references. It's kind of like, you know, we say reference heavy or whatever, but that does tend to happen with women who write lots of yeah. cultural stuff. It's like it gets written off as quippy or snarky or whatever. And I'm not yeah. sure what that is. I mean, I'm, I'm okay with it. I have to say like, you know, I was at the time that I wrote Juno, I was about as deep as a puddle, Yeah, you know, like <laughs> I, I was just a 20 something living her life in Minneapolis and doing irresponsible things and, you know, trying her hand at writing. And it really wasn't like, it was never intended as like this grand artistic statement or anything, which is why it was so shocking to me when mm. it wound up becoming like, you know, a film that many people saw because that was definitely not planned. 
So the director of Tully, you worked uh, Jason Reitman, yeah. you worked with him three times Yeah, now? this is our th- third time. Third and, and he was also, he, we worked together on Jennifer's Body, too. He was a producer, so okay. this is technically our fourth project. And uh, Charlize Theron was in Young Adult and yes. is now in Tully. When you have kind of that relationship, star, writer, director, across multiple projects, like is there, does a shorthand develop? Do you, are you able to sort of talk stuff out? Oh, yeah. Jason and I have gone past shorthand at this point. Like we're basically telepathic, which is great. Um, we just have a really interesting and easy and fluid way of working together. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't think we've had a creative argument ever. Mm-hmm. Um, we just, and, and we're very respectful of each other's process and he directs and I write and we, even if we have questions about what the other person is doing, we don't challenge it. Yeah. And I think that's, that's worked out for us. Um, that's just how we work. With Charlize, like, I'm content as a spectator in that relationship because she is so incredible yeah. and she's so just watching her is like magic. Um, and she's just obviously like a very cool, like very strong person. She's, I don't know. I just, I can't believe that I, I thought young adult was going to be a once in a lifetime opportunity really. And mm-hmm. so for the three of us to be able to do something like that again is it's like, I can't believe it. One of the things I, I love about Tully is that it's very honest about, how much parenthood can suck, how much motherhood specifically can suck. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure that some of that is, is drawn from life. I don't want you to like, uh, you know, rag on your kids. No, no, <laughs> I don't think, I don't think motherhood sucks. In fact, it's my, fa- it's my favorite thing I've ever done in okay. my life. Right. It's just the difficulty level right. is there's, there's certain things that I don't, um, like for instance, you know, in Tully, she has a son with special needs mm-hmm. and he doesn't have a diagnosis because for me, um, I've been asked about that. People have said, like, why, why don't we you talk about specifically what's up with the son? It's, it's because, like, a lot of parents out there in that situation are in a place where they're not being given answers. Mm-hmm. And they're desperate for answers. They're desperate for treatment. And it's just, like, mysterious. Mm-hmm. You know, I know, I know so many people, myself included, who have a child that's just, like, spectrum-y. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, not enough to get the services that you want. And it's, like... I guess my point is I was there are situations in parenting that are can be really exhausting and draining and stressful and I just, you know, but I also it's like for me it's been super fun so mm. I didn't put a lot of the fun in Tully. Maybe that's the next movie. No. Well, I, I do think that it is honest about, I guess, kind of trying to preserve yourself as a separate human being. Yeah, which when, is a huge issue for me. Yeah. Well, yeah. So tell me a little bit about like working that into – because it's not the most natural subject for a movie, let's say. No, it's not. It, it is. And it's really specific. And I, I think it's something that we've – I think we've seen some great like male midlife crisis movies like, mm-hmm. you know, American Beauty uh, being a great example. Um, but uh, – in terms of like women having their identity consumed by motherhood, mm. I don't think I've seen a lot of movies dealing with that. And yet it's something that I observe in like every mom I know. Mm-hmm. And it, and for some people that that process of surrender is easy. Mm. And for some like me, it's like it's it's really uh, it's tricky because I, I just I was never, you know, the little girl who was playing with dolls and I, you know, just really wanted to be a mommy one day. Like that wasn't like a dream of mine. And then when it happened to me, it was, it was amazing and it was wonderful, but it was also like, okay, well then who am I now? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like I always had more of an eccentric aunt personality. (laughs) So it's, it's it's like, but no, that baby, this is your baby. Take care of the baby. (laughs) (laughs) What, what, uh, that learning curve is hard for everybody, but like, how did you adjust to it? You know, I'm I'm really fortunate. I think that in a in a weird way, I was like, I had sons, which I think in a weird way I was meant to to do mm-hmm. because there's something about 
about boys and how uh, <laughs> dirty they are that I connect with. <laughs> like, I really like the sort of the sort of mud and potty words aspect of parenting a sure. lot more than a lot of people I know. Mm-hmm. And I think I enjoy that a lot more than I would have necessarily brushing hair. So it's, I like that. And I, by the way, I love little girls. That yeah. is, no, I'm not disparaging them in the least. I still feel like one most days, um, but I love having sons. And uh, also, um, I just, uh, I grew up because I, I had to. Mm-hmm. That's what happened. Mm-hmm. And my husband and I, we both just had to accept the, uh, the mission. Yeah. Mm, mm. You said that when you wrote Juno, you were deep as a puddle. I'm, yeah. I'm calling back to that. And um, how like how much of that do you attribute your sort of uh, depthening, which is not a word, I apologize, <laughs> uh, to, uh, you know, just the process of growing older or and how much is like having to because you had kids, because you had a spouse, things like yeah. that? Yeah. I think I want to think that I wouldn't have just maintained and, you know, a immature stasis if mm-hmm. even if I hadn't had kids, you know, or even if I hadn't gotten married. I think um yeah, I just, you know, you you do just grow up. And I think um I think it was actually helpful to to become a public figure in a way because you have to develop you develop a self-awareness really quickly when you hear what other people are saying about you. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. I don't think I would have ever realized how obnoxious I am <laughs> if it weren't for, you know, the internet. Mm-hmm. So it was a that was actually a helpful tool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to say, "Oh, okay, like <laughs> you you irritate people. Like yeah. maybe take it down a notch." <laughs> Did you uh, go through that phase of like searching for yourself online and seeing what people were saying? It was so brief. Okay. I did, but like it probably was a year of my life mm-hmm. and then since then I've stayed off the internet completely. Mm. I'm not on social media. Mm. Um, It's just something that I choose to avoid because it's like my problem is I'll believe anything I read about myself, positive or negative. Okay. So if somebody says Diablo Cody is a genius, Mm -hmm. I get puffed up and I turn into an asshole. (laughs) And if somebody says like Diablo Cody is like a disgusting piece of shit, I'm like, oh man, I want to kill myself. Mm. So it's like I, for some reason, I'm unable to distance myself from Mm -hmm. any remarks. So I just don't read any of it. (laughs) Interesting. I, you you used to have a wonderful Twitter feed and then one day Uh, I looked and it was gone. Yeah. I I deleted it years ago. Yeah. 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 This was like when we were, when we were launching the show, we wanted this show that I'm talking Mm -hmm. to you on right now. We wanted to have you on. And I was like, well, I'll just, you know, I'll just try and talk to her on Twitter and no, you were not. I know I'm hard to reach. Uh, yeah. yeah, You know, the problem with Twitter, I got to say, like, there seemed to be a point, and maybe maybe you disagree, but there seemed to be a point where it started to feel like obligatory, and it started to feel like work. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know anybody who's still on there unless they have to be there for work. But like, even like Instagram, which is where a lot of people I know have kind of segued to posting on Instagram all day, mm-hmm. especially with like all the crazy shit happening in the world, mm-hmm. it kind of felt like. Like, my inclination as the kind of deep as a puddle person I am is to, like, I want to post about what I had at Taco Bell. Mm-hmm. Whereas, but if there's something so bananas happening on the in our country, then I feel obligated to post about that instead. Yeah. And I, I certainly have no business as, like, a political commentator. I'll tell you that much. So it's I was just like, you know what? I'm just, I'm out. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> mm. What do, what's your Taco Bell order? What's your go-to? Okay, so I usually get a Crunchwrap Supreme okay. and a beefy, crunchy burrito. All right. I'll get two items. Okay. Because if I'm going to Taco Bell, I'm going balls to the wall. Like, I'm All not right. going to, like, you know, mm-hmm. it's my favorite restaurant. I, uh, I There used to be a Taco Bell in my old neighborhood that was open until, like, 2 a.m., and I would go there and get the Doritos tacos yeah. all the time. They're so good. It's so hard. The, the problem is I moved um, – I live, like, I live, like, dangerously close to a Taco Bell now. Okay. So it's, like, it's right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I uh, 
I live, uh, I do no, no longer live near a Taco That's Bell. That's good. So yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm in good shape. I, I hear that siren all the time, <laughs> the siren song. Well, thinking about sort of movies about motherhood, obviously Tully's about it. Uh, Ricky and the Flash is about a mother who yeah. runs away from her kids. Um, I, I love that movie too. Um, <laughs> I, I, kids. I'm trying to think of a way to like say, that's not, you know. No, no. I mean, Ricky was really about like my professional guilt because yeah. I work a lot mm-hmm. and um, that was... Me wondering why, you know, society seems to forgive men who've been good providers and who have pursued their dreams. Mm -hmm. And whereas if a woman does that, particularly if she fails at it, like Ricky, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, she's a monster. Yeah. Mm. You know? Did you find yourself closer to an answer after making that? Or was it just sort of, obviously you're not writing it to answer these age-old societal questions. No, that was, what came out of that was actually, that experience was, was, was truly disturbing because when we tested that film, the character of Ricky and the choices that she made scored the lowest with older women who were her age. Wow. Older women judged the shit out of her. Mm. And I thought, God, that's so upsetting because to me that is internalized. Mm-hmm. It, that's like to me. That's like self hatred. I'm not saying Ricky's a great person, and she shouldn't have moved a, like cross country away from her children. That was a shitty thing to do, mm-hmm. which we address in the film. But at the same time, like I don't also don't think she's like. I don't think Ricky's a monster. Yeah, yeah, and like TV's full of antiheroes, obviously, and like every yeah. time there's a woman who's an antihero, there's like this odd current of like, why is she doing bad yeah. things? Why isn't she no. perfect? And people don't like it. It's strange, particularly, and I've been given this note so many times from studios and from audiences, particularly mm-hmm. mothers. They don't like to see. Mm. They don't like a bad mom. Mm-hmm. Do you think that? Like you said, it was in the testing of Ricky and the Flash that came up. So is is some of it societal beyond just like Hollywood is sort of a system run by? I think I think a little bit because I, I I couldn't believe that the men were more sympathetic to her situation and mm. that it was the women who were saying, like, how could I ever root for this woman? Hmm. So that was, for me, telling. <laughs> and uh, But, you know, I mean, Jonathan Demme, working with him, like, I would do that again a million times if I could. I'm, and I can't, but I, I would. <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's a genius. Yeah. Uh, and that uh, – now, like we're on a tangent, and I love yeah, it. But, sorry, <laughs> no, that's I, fine. I didn't mean to derail. How do you know? How do you sort of navigate those straits then? Of like, I want to write about interesting, complicated people. Oh, but. I, I definitely don't sit and think like, oh, is this idea commercial or not? Mm-hmm. Because believe me, I would love to write a blockbuster. Mm-hmm. It's like a, it's a dream of mine. It would feel so good to have a movie in at, at number one or number four. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it would, like, it's something that I want to do, but I feel like. For some reason, the stories that I'm interested in telling seem to connect with a specific group of people as opposed to everyone, Mm. a four-quadrant movie, if you will. Mm. Mm. You were talking earlier about um, turning specificity, like having specific – like people are frustrated by uh, that there's not a specific diagnosis for the the son in Tully. And I was thinking about how often like we want art to be specific in everything when our own lives are like vague and strange and confusing. And that's like you talking about having a specific audience as well. Like uh, that divide between specific and universal is so interesting to me in art because I love your movies. So I don't understand somebody who wouldn't, but you know. I mean, and that's the thing, like, you know, and there are certain artists that are really other artists that are really specific and like I seek out their work and I think to myself like okay if everybody had the same taste as me this movie would make a billion dollars at the Mm -hmm. global box office but Mm -hmm. uh, you know it didn't because you know not everybody is like you know so excited to see the new you know Nicole Hall of Center or whatever so 
Well, also like blockbusters now, if you're not super into superheroes or Star Wars, like it's harder to get something with that level of budget made. You oh, know? absolutely. And and also like it, there is no world where a movie like Juno would have been a hit today. Mm, like mm-hmm. absolutely not. Yes. So much of that's moved to television now. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. Like I think maybe it, it could have caught on on Netflix or something, but like people wouldn't have bought tickets to the theater to see Juno or Little Miss Sunshine or any of the sort of really successful indies of that time. Mm. I don't think. Why? Obviously, you're not going to know the answer to this, but do you have speculation as to why that is? I actually understand it because I think that, you know, we have so much uh, media available to stream in our homes now that intimate movies like that feel like something you watch at home, Mm. whereas you buy a ticket to go see The Avengers and IMAX or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Movie going has become more of an experience down to the point where, like, now they have seats that rumble. (laughs) Yes. Like, I I very rarely go to the movie theater because I just can't get out of the house. But, Mm. like, when I do, it's inevitably to see something like like going to see A Star is Born in, like, Atmos. Because it's like, oh, I'm, it's like I'm at the concert. You know, yeah. everything else I watch at home. Mm, mm. Uh, it sounds to me, though, like you do appreciate that. Uh, even in other movies, like that intimate idea of like we're just going to like get a really I, – what I like about going to the movies is the focus. Like I'm forced to look at something. Yeah, and, which like, I need more it. than ever. Yeah. <laughs> because like I am I have a real problem with my phone. Yeah. So it's – um yeah, it's it, – I saw Halloween the other day. And I, I was thinking to myself, like, you know, if I was at home, I'd probably be second screening this. And I'm mm-hmm. like, I love that I'm like, I'm focused. <laughs> How'd you feel about it? How? I I loved it. I love yeah. David Gordon Green. So I was, that's mm-hmm. why actually why I went, because I was interested to see what, uh, how he would treat how, him and Danny McBride, how they would come out Halloween. And I actually thought it was uh, very classy. Yeah. Yeah. I like that movie a lot too. Yeah. Um, especially the last half hour. So. I agree. Yeah. yeah. Last half hour was great. And also like, cool to see Jamie Lee Curtis out there doing her thing, yeah. like looking 60 and, and doing it. Well, since we're on horror, uh, Jennifer's body this year, it feels to me like there's been kind of a groundswell yeah, of support just, for that movie. So random and weird. <laughs> what, what do you make of that? Uh, I, I, I love it. It's surprising to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely didn't see it coming and I have been contacted so many times recently about that movie and articles have been written about it and someone did a musical of it like in LA. I think it's 10 years old. That might be it. Is it? No. Okay. It came out in 2009. Okay. All right. I, I, then I, I have no idea. <laughs> like, wait, I could be wrong. <laughs> no, maybe you're right. Anyway. Um, I'm going to look this up. You continue talking. No, I think you're probably right. And uh, But yeah, I definitely didn't expect there to be that movie to get a second win, but it makes me happy that it did because I, I stand by that movie. I love that movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I love Karin Kusama. Mm. Have you seen Destroyer? Uh, I have not. I loved her last movie, The Invitation. Which is so amazing. Much. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, her and her husband, uh, Phil, and his writing partner, Matt, they're just, they're geniuses. So when you were right, working on Jennifer's Body, like, t- tell me that it is 2009. You're right. I apologize. <laughs> you know your career better than I do. It's so weird. Weird, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, when you were working on Jennifer's Body, like, you know, I remember at the time um, some of the reviews were not kind, if you will. Um, but That's unsurprising to me, though. Yeah, but I mean, it is, to me, that happens a lot with horror. Like, yeah. It's a genre where the initial reviews are often like, I don't get this. And then like 10 years later, people are like, no, this is elemental. And like, yeah. so tell me about like the, the, the sort of the stew that went into that. And are you a big horror fan? I am a huge horror fan. Mm-hmm. And I, that was, Juno hadn't come out yet, but it was about to. And mm-hmm. it was, you know, being buzzed about and it was positive. And suddenly I had this opportunity to do what I wanted, mm-hmm. which is a very 
exciting and also sort of high pressure situation to be in because it's like, all right, what would you like to do? There, mm-hmm. You know, I'm in a situation where I can literally make any movie that I want mm-hmm. and uh, or write any movie that I want. And um, I love horror. Mm-hmm. I always wanted to do something like that, like a, you know, sort of a horror movie with a, with a female protagonist and a female villain. And um, I just... That was what I wrote. <laughs> and um, people were enthusiastic about it. Like nobody said to me like, oh, I don't know, after Juno, maybe you should do another high school comedy. Or mm. like, you know, maybe maybe this is not the right project for you. People were supportive. Once we actually started shooting it, and particularly once we started cutting it, I was like, oh, this is – I love this movie, but this is like – specific. Yeah. <laughs> like I knew ahead of the reviews and ahead of everything that this was not going to be um, a movie that endeared itself to a, a, a mass audience the way that Juno had. So how did you, how did you know that? I'm always curious about that in my own work, you know? Yeah. It is hard to be objective, mm-hmm. but I, I just, I remember seeing a cut and I just knew. Yeah. So I did have to sort of steal myself and going into that experience. And um, it just, that was the moment actually, that was the fall of 2009 that I officially sort of completely stopped engaging with criticism or with any of that kind of stuff. Like that was, I think the last time I Googled myself was probably the day that movie came out. It was a long time ago. (laughs) So, um, you know, that was, uh, it was, it was a challenging time, but at the same time, like there's nothing I would change about the movie and I have zero regrets about the experience. So it's like, I don't know what else I could say. Do you think that it was just something that people needed to – sometimes we just need to grow into movies or to books or things that aren't, you know, like like society isn't ready for yet. Maybe. Do you you feel like that was kind of the case here? I think like the advanced sort of feeling about the movie was kind of tainted by the fact that like there was this weird thing going on where like Megan Fox had uh, talked about Michael Bay in a couple of interviews, which – to me, it seems like I don't understand why – is Michael Bay a sacred cow that mm. we can't make fun of? Mm. <laughs> I don't know why people got so upset. But it was almost like the audacity of this starlet, um, you know, saying something negative about the guy who made her career. Mm-hmm. And people just were really shitty about it. Right. And it's it's weird because it might you might think now like, oh, well, that was like a minor story. The tone of a lot of the coverage of our, our movie was like almost like 80 percent about – her feud with Michael Bay. <laughs> Interesting. Like, also, and I know this is, it's so cheap to like blame things on external shit, but like the movie was marketed all wrong. Okay. And I got, I, I'm not usually an argumentative person. In fact, I'm like really passive, but that was like the one time I've gotten in a fight hmm. because I was so furious about, they said, you know, we're, we want to market this movie to boys who like Megan Fox. That's mm-hmm. who's going to go see it. And I was like, girls are, no, this movie is for girls. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like, none of that was, you know, that, that audience, they did not attempt to reach. So that movie, I think like that movie works best if you, well, not, this is me forcing my interpretation. No, on, but for do. me, that movie works well if you're like in Amanda Seyfried's shoes and like yeah. making so much of the marketing about Megan Fox, I think skewed what that movie was and the perceptions. Well, yeah, that too. That too. I mean, yeah, the poster is Megan Fox. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, she's great, but. <laughs> no, she's awesome, by the way. Like, I'm still defending her against the Michael Bay <laughs> criticism in, I think in 2018. So. I think she's won that argument now, given time. I yeah, hope. I think she has. I mean, I find it interesting that, like, he's the person who's still working with her. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, didn't she do, like, the Ninja Turtles and I don't know. She was in uh, the, a couple seasons of New Girl and was just right, like right, right, fantastic. Right. And, uh, and she's funny. Yeah, she's yeah. so funny. Um, 
Yeah, one of the other things that is in the cover the like coverage of that movie now, and this is the last question about this, I promise. Yeah. <laughs> well, is that you know people are writing about it through the lens of Me Too, through the lens of um, talking about sexual harassment in Hollywood, et cetera, et cetera. And that's like a thing that obviously people feel like is a new story, but like Jennifer's Body, there are so many movies throughout history written by women or directed by women or just starring women that are about this topic. And oh, like, yeah. Uh, people are acting like we're just discovering it now yeah. in a way. And I think that's weird. Like, have you had those thoughts about your own movie? Yeah, I mean, I, I have. But it also, it, it, the interesting thing about, you know, Me Too as a new phenomenon is right. that for, you know, those of us who've been living that, it's uh, it's strange because it's just, it's not new, mm. obviously. Mm. So, yeah, you know, I was, you know, that movie was very much about the sort of issues that <laughs> women face and about, you know, the feeling of, being powerless and the feeling of wanting to turn the tables, mm-hmm. you know. Mm. I've been hearing people talking about Me Too in relation to the new Halloween as well. Yeah. Which is interesting because yeah. having heard that, I watched it and I have to admit, I was like assuming it was going to be like very on the nose in that way and it's not. Yeah. It's real, but it is about like uh, somebody getting their revenge decades later yeah. <laughs> on the, someone who <laughs> violated them. And it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's about, you know, what if... Uh, women banded together to shoot horrible men in the face. Um, So, exactly, it's there. (laughs) Um, One thing that uh, you mentioned about Googling yourself is that you write under an assumed name. Mm -hmm. So, and I think about like, if I want to Google myself, it's all under the same name. So like I have to go and like, I I have to seek out like stuff about my actual life as opposed to like my writing life. Right, right. You know. So I'm wondering, like, has that made it easier for you to disengage, that you that your life is under a different name? I mean, I don't – I have no idea what Brooke Mario was doing on the internet either because <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't Google either of them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I do have to say, like, it is sort of nice having – having relegated Diablo Coder to this sort of alter ego status that mm-hmm. is really – truly I only use that name on scripts. Mm-hmm. Um it's uh, it is kind of nice. Do you obviously you don't think about them as separate personalities? But do I you, don't think about them as separate personalities. But like for instance, my kids don't know who Diablo Cody is. Interesting. My son is eight years old, and I he doesn't understand why we have Diablo Cody's trophies in our house. <laughs> Are you ever going to explain it to him? I'm going to have to. I mean, I, but like, I it's not something that I you know I, I feel like doing right now because. I don't know. I also have like this very weird philosophy where I want to raise them as like distanced from Hollywood mm-hmm. in general as I possibly can. Yeah. Um, which is possibly unfair to them. Like mm. maybe they're going to grow up and say, why didn't you take us to premieres? Why didn't you, you know, and it's like, because I, I just want you to be normal. Yeah. That's a, I hear that a lot from people who are parents who are in the industry. Really? That they want, you know, unless their kid is like standing up at eight and saying, I am an actor, you know, yeah. like that they're like, I want to keep you away from this until you're old enough to like decide this is your life. The one thing I do is I do bring them to set because I think that's educational. I think okay. it's interesting to see how films are made. Mm-hmm. The one weird side effect of that is my, my eight-year-old is not afraid of horror movies because mm-hmm. he has been on so many sets that he watches movies from a perspective of like, how did they do that? Mm-hmm. As opposed to like, Freddie's going to get me. Mm. <laughs> Not that I'm letting him watch Nightmare on Elm Street, but you get my drift. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, we have to take a quick break, but we'll be back with Diablo Cody after that. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Smartwater. Not satisfied being like other brands, Smartwater looked up at the clouds and said, I wonder if we can one-up Mother Nature for a purer, crisper water. And guess what? They did. This is the kind of water that regular water gets jealous of. 
It's the water that refreshes like no other brand. Try it. Smart water. Vapor distilled for purity. Electrolytes for taste. The news today seems really grim. And it sometimes focuses more on problems than on solutions. I'm Dylan Matthews, the host of Future Perfect, a show about possible solutions. Solutions that are a little weird and a little wild, but worth considering. What will people say if I treat this person who murdered someone's loved one kindly? Simply tell the Border Patrol to take the day off. Tell them to take the year off. Listen to Future Perfect every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Now you're working on a stage show of uh, Jagged Little Pill. Mm -hmm. I have that correct. Yes. Um, Yeah. And obviously I haven't seen this because I don't – I live on the West Coast. Yeah. Yeah. We we did it in Cambridge over the summer and then we're bringing it to Broadway. So tell me a little bit about what's been different about working on stage in general. It is so luxurious (laughs) as a writer because you do it over and over and over again and you're not wasting film and you're not losing light. And uh, you just can – literally I've been working on this for two years with the Mm -hmm. same cast – and it's so – it's almost like – it's like endless reshoots. Mm. You can just make it better and better. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it's really difficult. It's uh, – there are very few perks. Uh, it's impossible to get a bottle of water in a theater rehearsal, whereas when you're on a movie set, it's like, would you like sushi? Um, and it's just – it's different. It's not Hollywood. You know, mm-hmm. it's like it's like bare bones theater. But it's also like magical. Yeah. And I've never – the crazy thing is I've never done that. Like I didn't work on like school plays in mm-hmm. high school. Like I never was sort of drawn to the theater. And now like that I'm in it, I, I just feel like I understand why it's – why people have this desire and this compulsion to, to work in the theater because it's – for a writer, it's the greatest thing in the world. The show's also kind of a weird adaptation, if you will. Like I don't know if you could call it an adaptation. So weird. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me about the process of adapting – an album. It's so hard, honestly. Like <laughs> they 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 came to me, they said, you know, we want to do a a Broadway show using Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill album as the music, and mm-hmm. we want you to write the book. And we do not want it to be a, you know, autobiography like a story about Alanis Morissette, the person. Yeah. So I had I listened to the album a million times, obviously, and I thought to myself, like, all these songs are about like they're, like thematically, the songs are kind of uh, they kind of do tie together nicely because it's it's really a an album about like awareness and consciousness and like waking up and mm-hmm. like swallowing a hard pill mm. and accepting stuff in your life as opposed to sticking your head in the sand, which is my default mode. Mm. So I, I started thinking about this dysfunctional family living in Connecticut and going through some really serious shit, and then I just started weaving that story in with the songs. Mm. Which has been tricky. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We were very lucky. We had a really successful run in Cambridge, which was great. But this word that kept popping up about the book was it's messy. Mm. And I was like, it is because when you're trying to cobble together a story using songs that were written in 1995 um, and embroidering all these like modern social issues into it, it is like it is hard. Mm Yeah. It's like the hardest game of chess I've ever played in my life. Yeah. So I am like I will acknowledge that there is I think a beautiful messiness to the show 
Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like, I feel proud of my work because it is not an easy thing to do. Well, it's also a lot of the time when you're working on a musical, the book writer and is like, I think we need a song that goes here. And then, you know, the, the lyricist and the score writer go and write that song and, and then it all comes together. And you have, you can't really do that here. Exactly. <laughs> you have to like craft it around those songs. Yeah, and the lyrics have to work with, mm-hmm. you know, we do, we've done some like minor lyrical rewrites just for in certain areas, but like typically we just used the songs as mm-hmm. they are on the album and I, I know I was like, if I ever do a musical again, which I would love to, I would do an original musical where I work with a composer mm. and if we can write songs that further the story as opposed to working backwards mm. because it is mm. it is such a crazy process. Well, it's also like anytime you use a famous piece of music, which you've done throughout your career, like you have to be certain it's not so famous you can't recontextualize it in some way. You yeah. can't get the audience to be like, okay, I know this song, but I'm going to go with it here. And right. like, that has to be tricky with an album that was literally everywhere in the 90s. It is. And you. it's funny, like everyone who's seen the show has told me the same thing where they're like, I totally forgot how many hits mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Alanis had because everyone sort of is, is going there and they expect to hear like, you ought to know. Yep. And like maybe, um, I guess the other song that people probably really remember is like Hand in My Pocket. Mm-hmm. But there's like, like you'll know every just about every song in the show if you mm-hmm. see it, which is surprising. I mean, yeah. it's just, she has a huge catalog. And by the way, she's like... She's been the most amazing collaborator. Mm. I got lucky on that one because I can imagine there's situations where you're writing a jukebox musical and the original artist is a pain in the ass. And that Mm. was not the case. So you talked about stage having a lot of time. Uh, You've also worked in TV where there's like no time. Like which method of working is better for you? Um. Because some people really like the the pressure. I do. I you know I have a short attention span, and the thing I like the thing I like about TV is you just have to get it done, and you then you you know mm-hmm. you have to deliver the episode. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I do enjoy working in TV as well. Um, mm-hmm. Although, like, I do feel like success in TV has like eluded me, and it drives mm-hmm. me crazy. Like, I would really, really love to make a show that connects with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. That's like my dream. Mm-hmm. But. Um, I don't know. I have to say, like, I'm I'm so in love with theater right now. Mm. I, I just can't. Um, it's so electric to yeah. just have it be a real living thing out there every night. Yeah, there's something to be said for the idea that it could run for five years, and five years from now you could be like, you know, I want to make this tweak, and like that would happen. Oh, it's crazy. Like, you can, you know, I asked, I said to our director Diane Paulus, who mm-hmm. is like this super insanely smart, successful director who's you know won Tonys and stuff, and mm-hmm. she. I said to her, like, when do we stop changing the show? And she's like, we still change things in Waitress sometimes, which mm. has been running for years. Yeah. So I was like, that is cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I was reading the the Angels in America book, and, like, Tony Kushner is still altering parts yeah. of that show yeah. and for new revivals. And yeah. it's like, that's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's very cool. Yeah. yeah. Thinking about television, I guess, um, I almost ran a poll on Twitter about United States of Terror the other day. Oh, boy. a show I love. And you guys uh, discovered Brie Larson, so good on you. You know who did? Steven mm. Spielberg. Yeah, okay. I cannot take credit for that one. Okay. There's a reason he is uh, as successful as he is, because she came in and he said, that's the one. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, Steven. <laughs> <laughs> And by the way, I thought she was fantastic as well. I'm mm-hmm. just saying I re- specifically remember he was the one who said, like, mm-hmm. she's brilliant. That's a find. Yeah. Tell me kind of about the experience of working on that show because I, I love all three seasons of that show, but they're very different from each other. Yeah, we had a different showrunner every season. Yeah, and I yeah. feel like it could have run 
longer. I mean, they shouldn't let me run my own show. Yeah. No. Um, I, you know, when you're, when you're new to television, I don't blame them for not letting me run yeah. the show. I certainly could not have handled it. But um, I also think it's probably best for the creator to run the show. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what's complicated. My favorite season is the second one when Jill Soloway was running it, mm-hmm. who it gave me such glee to see Jill go on to huge success in television because I was so obsessed with her from day one. Right, <laughs> and right. Like, I felt like that was something that I knew before everyone in a way. Right. But um, I had no experience. I had never been in a writer's room. Mm-hmm. I, you know, typically you come up as like, you're a script coordinator, you're an assistant, then you're a script coordinator, then you're a staff writer, mm-hmm. then you're an EP, and then you're, maybe you get your own show. Mm. You don't usually get your own show out of the gate and have had no experience mm. in a writer's room. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the whole concept of a writer's room was impossible for me to accept or grasp. Really? I was like, I cannot, why am I sitting with other people? Like, this is so weird. How how do we write a script by committee? It's going to suck. Mm. I didn't understand how to use writers in the service of your own voice, if that makes any sense. Sure. Yeah. I've since learned that. Mm-hmm. Um, I've actually worked on a – it's funny. I was just talking about this with someone the other day. I've actually worked on a shocking amount of television. Like I've written so many pilots. I've made a few. Mm. I just haven't – I think I've only had two shows go to series, which were Tara and One Mississippi, which we did a couple seasons of at Amazon. Mm-hmm. But – um I have much more experience than my IMDb page would indicate in TV. And at this point, I feel like, okay, I'm ready. Mm. Give me a show to run. I can do this. That's that's interesting because I feel like people who write for the screen, there are people who really want to write in a team. Like if I'm thinking about television, one of the things that appeals to me is like that idea of the room, that idea of all these people throwing their ideas out there. And then there are people who really just are like, I want to write. You know, like most people become writers to write by themselves. That's the thing. And honestly, that's my preference. Uh But there are also situations like last year I did a multi-cam sitcom, which was really cool. Oh, cool. You know, live audience. And like it was – shooting that pilot was a blast. And that is very much – I learned quickly. The more people you have around you, the better. Mm -hmm. You know, there are people in this industry who are joke machines Mm. and are just so – brilliant at at creating that specific type of material that's going to get a reaction from an audience. Mm. And um I needed them. What was the multicam? I'm, I'm sorry. It was called <laughs> it was called most likely to and it was about this woman, I mean this is a typical sitcom convention, but it was about this woman who is sort of forced to move in with her high school bully mm-hmm. as an adult except the tables have turned mm-hmm. and now the woman who was teased is very successful and has her shit together and the bully is down and out. Yeah. And uh, they sort of, you know, learn to be friends and raise their kids together. And that was going to be the show. And I was uh, I was excited to do it. I was psyched. And the, I'm happy with how the pilot came out, tested well, but we did not get a series order, hmm. which is it's a tough game. It is. Is there is there a pilot you particularly are sad didn't Oh, advance? my God. Yeah. Okay, so 2016. Mm. Um, I made a pilot called Raised by Wolves that okay. was an adaptation of a, a British show. Mm-hmm. And it was about a single mom who has five kids by three different fathers. And she uh, lives in Iowa and they're poor. Mm-hmm. And it's it, the original show um, is uh, written by Catelyn Moran. Mm-hmm. And it's so hilarious. And I was like, oh, I, I, like, it's going to be so hard to do this justice. But I think we did. And what it came down to was... You know, we did it for ABC, which is this very kind of glossy, Mm family-friendly network that does sort of aspirational shows um, where people are very attractive and have enough to eat. (laughs) And uh, it just um, – what came down from the very tippy, tippy top was that it was was depressing Mm -hmm. to see the kids have to share a bed, you know, 
the, the baby daddy conversations and, but it was real. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the things that, that runs throughout your work is that there is that interest in different socioeconomic strata. Yeah, yeah. Like that's even there in Juno to, to a large degree. Yeah. And that's hard to tell stories about. Like people don't want to hear stories about that. No, it kind of bums people out. There, There's always going to be a segment of the population that really loves like a Nancy Myers movie. They like mm-hmm. to look at that beautiful kitchen or they live to a Judd Apatow movie where your middle class family lives in Brentwood. Yeah. Which by the way, I enjoy those movies as well. Mm-hmm. No shade. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I it's not something that uh, – it actually takes me out of it when I watch movies like that because mm-hmm. I'm like, nobody I know has a kitchen like this. Yeah, yeah. I felt that way like about the show Modern Family, which I think is a very good show. But like toward season three, it was like they just wrecked their car every week and they were like they have apparently an infinite yeah. car budget. It's like really hard <laughs> yeah. to get, you know. Yeah, exactly. Like it's uh, – I you know, for me it's, you know, a little more relatable if, if people are uh, – are living on a budget and have you, like real jobs. I mean, people people who are at the making the decisions in Hollywood often have a lot of money. Do you think it's hard to make them think about stories about people who don't? Oh, definitely. You know, and in a lot of cases, it's like generational wealth. Like he might get, he'll probably get mad at me for talking about this. I love Jason Reitman so much, but you know, he was raised very, very wealthy. So like a lot of the time I have to explain stuff to him. Mm-hmm. That's it. <laughs> the movies we wrote. <laughs> like, because it's like not something that, you know, he, a classic would be where, you know, we were talking about a bunch of kids at a sleepover watching a movie mm-hmm. in like the den. And he, you know, was, you know, he grew up where you'd watch a movie in the theater. Yeah. The home theater. Yeah. <laughs> so. That's, that's, uh, that's wild to me. That's it's wild. wild to me too. I love it actually. Yeah. Like, and I, it's, and I, there's no judgment for me. It's just like people have different frames of reference. And there are a lot of people in Hollywood that grew up very, very rich. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I finally have come back to my Valley Fair questions. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> please let's talk about Shakopee. I used to work in uh, Eden. Wait, where did I? Eden Prairie? Yeah, I worked in Eden Eden Prairie. That's okay. The, that's not the fancy one. That's a diner. I worked in Eden Prairie and I remember driving through Shakopee, Shakopee every day to get to work <laughs> in the snow. Yeah. 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 Um, what do you think grew like living in the Midwest brought to your storytelling? Like what, what is a Midwestern story, if you will? You know, someone told me early in my career when I came here, they said it was some big wig and they were like, I love specifically working with people from the Midwest because you have, you know, like salt of the earth, sort of sarcastic pessimism. (laughs) And it's true (laughs) for me. It's, it's, I, I prefer to call it, you know, realism. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting to me. When you grow up in the Midwest, if you say something like, I want to be a screenwriter, mm-hmm. people don't – it's not like they shit on you, but it's like, that's probably not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Like, and then what else are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Like, are you going to write screenplays in your spare time? What's your real job going to be? Right. Whereas in L.A., you literally meet people who are like, and then I'm going to be like – like, I'm going to be as big as Oprah. <laughs> and there's no sense of like, that might not happen. Mm-hmm. Like, they're just – they believe it with every fiber of their being. And it's like – it's kind of obnoxious. <laughs> like I appreciate the the I appreciate the fact that Midwesterners are like a little bit uh, a little bit self loathing and a little mm-hmm. bit pessimistic. Yeah, yeah. When I, uh, I I played the piano growing up, and when I told my parents I wanted to be a writer, they were like, "Aren't you going to be a concert pianist?" And I was like, "You are the only people on earth who are sad that my writing career is it's, taking off because you wanted me to be a concert pianist." That's so cool. That yeah. were you on the track to be like a concert pianist? Though? I was. I was good. I wasn't that good. And like I realized that on a very bone deep level when I got to college and saw other people, and they were yeah. like, "Okay, they're better than me, and I don't actually want to have to work hard enough to be as good as them." And I prefer writing anyway. Well, so it's still cool that you can play the piano. <laughs> <laughs> like one thing I wish I could do. Uh, what's your favorite Valley Fair roller coaster 
or ride? Oh, man. Um, I like the – wait a minute. No, that's at the Mall of America. The oh, Mall you're of making America's me reach – you're making me reach <laughs> way back. Camp Snoopy at the Mall of America. Yeah, good old no, – That's something else. It's like a camp – it's non. It's not. They now. did. They they did take away the Camp Snoopy branding. Yeah. It's Nickelodeon World or something. Ugh. I know. I'm Ugh. sorry. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember. Like Valley Fair. It's way back in the recesses <laughs> of my brain. I apologize. That's okay. Yeah. Uh, it's the Corkscrew. That's the correct answer. Or the Excalibur. Uh, is the Corkscrew still there? I think so. It's been years since I've been. To I Valley think most Fair. Of, a lot of the really old coasters from like the early '80s have been have been ripped out. Wow. But yeah. Sad. Yeah. Sad for my childhood. So <laughs> we kind of we're, we're kind of coming into the end here. Yeah, and yeah. We started out by talking about stories about motherhood, and then I was going to ask this question, and then we just did whatever we just did for like forty five minutes. So which is great. I, yeah. I loved every minute of it. <laughs> but I want to ask, what are some other stories about motherhood you looked at when uh, you were working on Tully? Um, I didn't. Really? Okay. Yeah. I wish I was better at doing my homework. You know, I have so many friends that are, that are screenwriters that have, have this incredible process where they'll, they'll be like, I sat down and watched every Hal Hartley movie before I blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I never do it. And I honestly don't think it's because of any uh, ideological thing. I just am like lazy mm. and I spend like too much time like staring at my phone and like shopping. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, this is a problem I have in life. Depth. Well, let me ask then, do you see other stories about motherhood that reflect your own experience or that you feel like get some aspect of it right? Oh, stuff. See, this is this is this is always where I get screwed when people <laughs> ask me about other movies. No, that's okay. Cuz I'm just like like the Jeopardy theme is playing in my head. Well, no, I mean, I'm just like I'm seeing like a I'm seeing like a slideshow of Bachelor contestants, but I'm trying really hard to think about films. Um, I don't. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I, I I guess that's probably why I write them because I right. don't see that representation that I relate to. Well, we talked. We did talk about yeah, how like, like few stories there are. I about. write the movies I want to see. Yeah, I, and if I if if that movie already exists, I don't write it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, who's your favorite Bachelor? Or Bachelor oh, contestant. You know who's like the MVP? Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of people hate him, but Nick Vile. Okay. What do you like, like about him? Just, I liked that he kept coming back like Michael Myers. <laughs> um, I, I don't think he's ever going to get married. I think he's like an eternal bachelor, which is really quite poignant if you think about it yeah. in the context of the franchise. And I think uh, I think he's an interactive man. Like, I'm not going to lie. Sure. Sure. <laughs> Are you uh, – uh, do you have other reality – TV show favorites. No, I just want to talk about You know about what this. I just discovered um, on Netflix? I think it might be British. It's a documentary series called um, called Three Wives, One Husband. Okay. And it's about this uh, polygamous family that live in a, like, they literally live in these, like, caves in uh, in Utah. And it's, okay. it is so juicy. Like, it is, like, honestly, it is, like, the most extreme drama I've ever seen in a reality show. Like, just to give you an idea of how good this show is, mm-hmm. he has... Three wives, and then in episode two, they're considering bringing two more wives in. Wow. Which would be like season finale shit for most shows. <laughs> but this is episode two. That's great. Like, yeah, like I, that's the kind of like, that is the kind of pacing I want in my reality shows where we like almost <laughs> double the amount of wives before we're even halfway through. Great. Yeah. <laughs> we end every episode by asking our guests some of the same questions. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I'm going to ask you a few of those. And the first is, who is the writer, living or dead, you learned the most from that you never met? 
Tom Robbins. Interesting. Why do you say that? You know, one thing I loved about his writing and love about it to this day is it's playful and it's excessive and it's pyrotechnic and it's just totally OTT and mm-hmm. extra in a way that I relate to. Mm-hmm. You know, it, I always – it made me not afraid to sort of uh, embellish my own prose, so to speak, which, you know, some people would say to the detriment of my prose, but that's what I do. Do you have a favorite book of his? Oh, man. Probably even cowgirls get the blues still okay. yeah. after all these years. Mm. I read it when I was like 14. Mm. What's the – whether you saw a movie, saw a TV show, you may have just answered this. But whether you saw a movie, TV show, listened to an album, read a book, what's the last pop culture thing you took in and what did you think of it? The last thing that I took in, and I can't talk about Three Wives, One Husband, which I fell asleep <laughs> watching last night. Um, the book Made for Love by Alyssa Nutting. Okay. It's fantastic. What's it about? Uh, <laughs> it's pretty crazy. It's like crazy Florida Gothic. It's about the, this, uh, woman who, uh, is escaping her husband. Who's like this Mark Zuckerberg type. Who's like figured out how to track her every move. Mm-hmm. And she moves in with her dad who is married to a sex doll. Mm-hmm. And then there's this parallel story involving a guy who's in love with and sexually attracted to dolphins. Okay. So it's just kind of, Yeah. That sounds good. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I'm the type of person that says yes. Yeah, I would read she's, a, she's Alyssa Nutting is an amazing writer. And finally, uh, whether it's for the quality of the company or the quality of the food, what is your favorite meal you've ever eaten? My favorite meal that I've ever eaten. Um, you know, this is such a basic veg answer, but a few years ago, my husband and I went to Providence mm-hmm. because um, Patton Oswald sent us a gift card after doing Young Adult. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, Providence is like a super fancy schmancy high-end restaurant and I'm more of a Taco Bell type and sure. I've never really been to a place like that. And it's like, it's like mind blowing. Mm-hmm. Like they're like bringing out like big truffles and like chopping them up with like a butcher knife. And you're mm-hmm. like, oh my God. <laughs> Did you develop a taste for fine cuisine or were you like still Taco uh, Bell? I'm t- I'm still pretty trash. I'm making hot dish tonight. Do you know what that is? <laughs> well, yes, I do. Okay. What, what's what's going to be in, in your hot dish? Well, it's going to be, you know, the typical ground beef, frozen mixed veggies, mm-hmm. a cream base, and I'm going to put tater tots on top. Tater and I'm tots. Bake it. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And that's really kind of how I roll. <laughs> so that was the first installment of our new segment, Diablo Cody's Kitchen Corner. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm like, re- truly, my cooking has never left. My cooking has never left the Midwest. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so you can watch Tully. It's available on video on demand and DVD and all these things. And you, uh, Jackie Little Pill, will hopefully be on Broadway soon. Gosh, I hope so. And uh, all your other movies, people should check them out. All so. that stuff. Yeah. Thank you so much Thank for Thank you. Us. Thanks for having me. I Think You're Interesting is full of witty, sharp banter. And that's because it's written by me, host and executive producer, Todd Vanderwerf. Our producer is Bridget Armstrong. Our editor is Griffin Tanner. The executive producer of audio here at Vox Media is Nishak Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Yule. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Allreich. Our production coordinator is Gary Clements. Our audio engineering in our studio are thanks to the Rebel Talk Network of Los Angeles. Our recording engineer this week was Ernie Hurtado. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you happen to get your podcasts. You can email me. I'm Todd at Vox.com. You can email the show, itya.podcast, itye.podcast at Vox.com. You can also tweet at me at TVOTI to Vody. We're going to be back next week with one of my favorite podcast hosts, Karina Longworth of, you must remember this, I almost said she was of, I think you're interesting, which is not true at all. Karina Longworth of, you must remember this. She's here talking about her new book, which is fantastic if you happen to get your hands on a copy. But 
until then, seriously, guys, young adult, great movie. Go check it out. Just like, uh, say I told you to do it, and they'll let you out of work. I promise. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Smartwater. Not satisfied being like other brands, Smartwater looked up at the clouds and said, I wonder if we can one-up Mother Nature for a purer, crisper water. And guess what? They did. This is the kind of water that regular water gets jealous of. It's the water that refreshes like no other brand. Try it. Smart water. Vapor distilled for purity. Electrolytes for taste.